we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for our teenagers. God, these young men and women who caught your great commission and are now headed out this week into various parts of Metro Detroit, all the way from the pier down to Detroit. Lord, I am so excited that your church family would support something as adventurous and courageous. God, these young people, bless them, every single one of them. Bless their families, bless their parents, bless their friends, bless their interactions this week. God, I pray for their safety. God, the the safety that they need to travel across these locations. Let them have courage. I pray that your spirit would rush upon them so that they can go boldly in faith to be like the prophets and kings and judges of old, to meet people and do things that you've ordained them to do because, God, the acts of service that they relinquish to your glory, God, we know that you're going to use those things, that you're going to multiply those things, that you are going to change the world because of those things, God, and we believe that with all our heart. Today, as we study your word, let your presence be known to all of us. Do a work in our hearts so that we can become more and more like you. We want to follow you into eternity and do the work that you've called us to do. We pray this in Jesus' magnificent, holy, precious name. Amen. 1 Samuel chapter 2. And it goes like this. And Hamlet prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren have borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Amen. I want to start off by asking all of us a question. right? And the question I want to ask is, do you sometimes feel like you're just going through the motions of faith? Uh, let, let me give you some examples so you will know what I'm talking about. You pray. But the words that you say mean nothing. You you don't even hear from God when you pray. Maybe maybe you read the Bible, but the words that you're reading, they don't mean anything. There's no impact in your life. There's nothing that you glean from it. Maybe you serve or you're serving, but you're not even fully present with the people you're serving. You're just going through the motions. Maybe... You come to church on a Sunday, and you got here, and you leave an hour later, a donut heavier, but there's nothing. There's nothing. And and you know what? If that's you, I'm going to be the first to say, I'm going to admit, sometimes I feel that way, that I'm just going through the motions of faith. In fact, earlier this week, I know I was just going through the motions. I was reading the Bible, 
but the words meant nothing. I was praying, but God didn't speak to me. I was serving, but I was just moving around like a zombie. I wasn't fully present. And I'm going to tell you that as, my, as a pastor, right, as your pastor, and the reason I share that with you is because I'm going to tell you that there are days, there are weeks, there may be even months or years in your life where this is your norm. You're just going through the motions. You're just going through the motions. And, you know, I don't know what circumstances you're facing or the things that you're, you're just, you know, in front of you, but there are times where, man, it's a miracle that you even read the Bible. It's a miracle that you even prayed. It's a miracle it's a miracle that you even showed up to church. But then for others, this is just the norm of our life. We just go through the motions. But let me tell you, if that is you, if you are just going through the motions for the sake of going through the motions, because you know going through the motions, eventually it's going to be good, right? That's what practice is about. If that's just you, you're going to be the first to experience that you don't actually need to commit to faith, that it's not actually faith going through the motions. And that when Jesus called us to be his disciple, he called us to live a life full of risk and journeying into places and meeting people that should make us very uncomfortable. And that these disciplines that we go through the motions of, they're actually the things that keep us moving in obedience to his call. And so when we start doing these things and they become empty, what is it then? It's just empty religion. It's not faith. It doesn't require anything of you. But being a disciple of Jesus, that, that, that takes courage. You will be stretched. That's undoubted. You will have to take risks, right? And it's going to make you go above and beyond the comforts of yourself, right, and your abilities. And we know that this is what God calls us to because that's how, God, how great God is. And if you haven't taken these risks in a while, and I'm not even talking about, you know, going to live with cannibals to share the gospel with them in a foreign country. I'm just talking about being present in the gospel, being bold with your faith, right? Just saying, hey, I believe in Jesus, right? Because that's a bold commitment. That's a bold statement, right? If you're not even risking that in your daily life, then how worthy or how worthless is your faith? Because honestly, there's so much more you can fill your life with, so much more time, so many other things, right? Living faithfully is not about being private and practicing things alone. It's about being bold in faith and taking risks for God because he calls you to something greater, to a great unknown. And, and if that's you and you, you haven't taken a risk and you don't know what risk that you should be taking, I'm going to ask you, what caused you, what happened in your life? that made it so that you would only use your faith when it's convenient, when it's safe? What, what was it that you got a family, you got a wife, and you got kids, and maybe it was a, a bad accident or a bad medical diagnosis? Maybe it was your job. It, it caused you to, to shrink back in faith. Or, or you know what? We can do better. We can blame COVID, right? We got another two years where we can blame COVID on everything we don't do, everything that we don't want to do. Maybe the moment you decided you're going to shrink back in faith was the moment that this country, that America, became post-Christian. And just to note, I'm going to tell you, countries can't be Christian, right? Countries can't be Christian. Countries can't be post-Christian. Country is just a place where people live, and if the people are post-Christian, if the people are not disciples of Jesus, and if the disciples of Jesus don't act like they believe in God and live with faith, what hope is there for a country? 
So instead of lamenting about the problems that our country has, why not risk your lives for the gospel by living in the gospel, by living in faith? In fact, when I start thinking about it, and if you start thinking about it, the reason I even became Christian was because somebody risked everything and said, you know what, Jonathan? I see the life that you're living. I want you to be a disciple of Jesus with me. And when I was 16 years old and when this kid, he shared it with me, he didn't know Jesus longer than five minutes before he took a risk. Yet some of us, we're, we're here, you know, one year in and two years in, 10 years in, we haven't risked for Jesus in such a long time. We can't even remember the last time we took a leap of faith. Are we ready to take bold risks in faith? Are, are, are we ready to live the life Jesus called us to? And, and to that end, are, are you ready to harness the power that God is putting in your life to be present with him, to follow him to places and with, to people that you've never expected to encounter? And if the answer is yes, if the answer is yes, then I'm going to help you today. I'm going to help you shed light on how you get to a place where your faith is constantly stirred on, spurred forward, because that's exactly what we need in our lives, right? Today, we're going to talk about worship. David Foster Wallace, he is an, he's a novelist, an American novelist who died about 20 years ago. He made this observation about worship. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everyone worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason, reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type of thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You will never feel like you have enough. If you worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing you're going to die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. If you worship power, you'll end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you're going to end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the most insidious thing about these forms of worship is this that they're unconscious. There are default settings, but we all know that stuff. The whole trick is keeping the truth in front of us daily, in our daily consciousness. You see, David Foster Wallace, he, he was an atheist most of his life. And, you know, he, 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 he was famous because of his atheism. But somewhere in between all the drug addictions and the alcohol, he met God. He met God. He, he wouldn't confess it all the way, but he met God. He, got, he went to church before he died. But let, let me summarize this for you, because if an outsider to our faith can say this about worship, it says something to us, doesn't it? You see, what, what he's saying is this. Worship is something everybody does, and it doesn't matter your religion, and it doesn't matter your socioeconomic status, right? And here's, here's what's so brilliant about this, right? The question that he is asking all of us is, who are we worshiping? What are we worshiping? Is it God or is it some idol? That's been the question since the beginning, hasn't it? Since we got the Ten Commandments. 
You see, if worship is the act of venerating something or somebody as worthy, it causes us to behave in certain ways in our attempts to be like it or to obtain it. So this is important to us if we are the people of God being called to God. We worship God and we keep worshiping God in front of us daily because as we worship God, worship transforms us. It sanctifies us. It renews us as we follow Jesus. You see, worship does something so profound and so supernaturally encouraging that it, it helps us take risks in faith that we never thought we could. And so when we do take these risks in faith, they are never leaving us empty, but they become full of grace upon grace in our lives. And so that information is all great. But now how do we worship God? Jesus answers the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 by saying this, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And here's what that really means. Because God is spirit, he is invisible and unknowable unless God chooses to reveal himself to us. And God does reveal himself to us through his son, Jesus Christ. When Jesus calls us to be his disciples and we receive him, we receive his Holy Spirit. And that spirit of truth awakens our hearts and our minds to the reality of biblical revelation becoming tangible through the cross and resurrection of our God, of our King, Jesus Christ. You, you see, worship is not mindless. It's not a matter of checkboxes, but it's thoughtfully grounded in the truth of God's word and passionately charged by our heart's affections through God's spirit. So we worship in response to God's faithfulness. That, that's the culminating thought. We worship God as a response to his faithfulness. You see, God is faithful. God is faithful. God opens his arms to sinners. He calls you and me to be his child, not because of our faithfulness, not because of what we did, not because of our efforts, not because of how pretty we are, but because he willed it. He wanted it, and he says, follow me. And when we can't follow him, he doesn't shame us. He, he doesn't kick us out. He says, I love you, so keep going. I love you, continue with me. I love you, let's get back up, because we worship a God who is faithful. And that brings us to our passage in, in 1 Samuel chapter 2. But before we re read this passage again and really go deep into this passage, I, I want you to understand the context of this passage, right? Hannah the woman who's praying this, this is actually a praise song, it's a worship song. She, she is one of two wives of a, of a man named Elkanah. The thing about Hannah was that she was the beloved wife of Elkanah, but she was barren. And the other wife, his other wife, Peninnah, she was not barren. She had both sons and daughters, the Bible says. This is in chapter 1 of, in 1 Samuel. And she used to rub that in Hannah's face, right? She shamed her for being barren. She antagonized her, right? This was not a good relationship. And the Bible says that Elkanah and his entire family would go from their home in Ramah to Shiloh where the Ark of the Covenant of God was every single year. That's about 20 miles away. They would walk there and they would worship God because that's what they promised to do as a family. And one year, the family was worshiping God and the family had gone to eat. Hannah stood in front of the tabernacle and prayed. And she prayed and the prayer that she prayed was, God, God, I want a son. Give me a son, God. If you give me a son, if you give me a son, I will give him back to you. He will be in your service the rest of his life. And so now when you start thinking about this prayer and when you start reading this prayer, you, this is a prayer of a desperate woman because she's already willing to give up what she doesn't have. 
if God gives it to her. Right? This is, this is incredible. Right? She, she's giving back to God what she doesn't have. And so she prays this, and she's praying fervently, right? She's moving around, praying this. Her lips are moving. And the priest who's at Shiloh says to her, why are you drunk? It's 9 a.m. Go home. And she explains to him. She has to explain to him because she's passionate. She's praying. This is how hard she's praying. This is how desperate she wants it. And he says, you know what? Okay, I heard you. I'm glad that you're praying to God this way. May God grant to you what you prayed for. And so she goes home with the, her family the, the, the rest, the, later that day, and she gets pregnant. Later that year, she gives birth to a boy named Samuel. Samuel means God hears, right? And so now she has her one and only son, and the Bible says that as soon as he was weaned, and I don't know what that is, whether that's three years old or that's five years old or however old it is, what we do know is he's not an adult. He's not a teenager. He's a young boy. She goes back to Shiloh with her son, ready to give him over to the Lord. The thing that she desired the most, she is there at the tabernacle, giving it up. And this is where this worship comes, right? This is what happens. When they arrive at Shiloh, Hannah presents Samuel, and they begin to worship God. And it shows us three attributes, three attributes of worshiping God that will supernaturally spur us on to risk more in faith because she's about to risk everything. And here's the first attribute. Worship acknowledges who God is and his nature. Worship acknowledges who God is and his nature. Verse 1, and Hannah prayed, my heart exalts the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. God is first and foremost our salvation. Let's not forget that. And when we worship, we rejoice in that truth. And when we worship, when we rejoice, we're actually confessing this. We're confessing that there is none like our God. That there is nothing hidden from him in our lives. There's nothing that he can't do in our lives. There's nothing that he can't overcome. And as a result, our hearts should be moved to praise him. As a result, we have glory and victory. And see, the idea of the horn being exalted in the Lord, that, that imagery comes from a bull after a battle when he raises his horn up high and says, I am victorious. And so that image is here that our horns are exalted in God. Verse 3, talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread. But those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren born seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. You see, the nature of God is sovereign. His omnipotence alters life as we know it. This is why we have salvation. Because it was in his omnipotence, through grace alone, by faith alone in Jesus Christ, that we are saved, right? It doesn't come by our works. It doesn't come by our efforts. It's not natural for us. We are his children because he redeems us and chooses to restore himself to us, right? When we worship God, we rejoice in who he is, supernaturally encouraged. That's what I want you to walk away with when we worship. We walk away supernaturally encouraged. And Hannah is worshiping God very much aware of that this is the moment that she is gonna say goodbye forever, 
to her son, her one and only son. And he's going to serve God away from her. And he is going to be there. And so she reminds herself, I'm rejoicing because not that I have a son, not because of what my son is going to do, but because of who God is, who God promises to be sovereign, not only in her life as he fulfilled promises to her, but in Samuel's life, whom she's giving away. The second attribute of worship is this. Worship helps us recognize our need for God. Verse 6, the Lord kills and brings life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy up from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. As Hannah is worshiping, as you worship, as we worship, we need to recognize that God lives for people like you and me. Broken, poor, destitute, desperate. He is responsible for life and death. He is responsible for riches and poverty. He is responsible for our highs and lows. And when we fail to worship God, it's because we don't recognize our need for him. You, you see, there's a tendency. This, this is so human of us. We think we're God. We believe we brought about our own good fortunes. It was our own blood, sweat, and tears that got us here. We're responsible for all the good that's in our life, all the things, all the comforts that we have. And here's what makes it worse. We feel entitled to God's blessings. At the same time, we want to blame God for everything wrong in our lives, for all the evil in society, for everything that hinders us, for our dreams not coming true, because nothing is really our fault, it's God's. And so we, we sit here in this false dichotomy, and so we, we have to really understand that we either believe God is responsible and in control of everything, and if he's not, what we want to do is we want to minimize our need for him. That, that's just who we are. And in fact, I, I was reading an article, and it was a study by Barna who, who was looking at um, the, the number one and number two barriers of faith. And what's interesting is this, the number one barrier to faith is that how can a good God, the God of the Bible, allow such evil and terrible things to happen in our world? And the number two barrier to faith is the fact that Christians are hypocrites. And when you start thinking about these two barriers to faith, it's real funny because guess what? We want to be God, so we want God to bend to our morality. Whatever our good is, whatever our evil is, we want God to do that. And when it comes to hypocrisy, they don't see the hypocrisy themselves when they say Christians are hypocrites because what? Christians impede on your belief of not being Christian. And so even as Christians, if you're a hypocrite, it should definitely show you how much more you need God, right? If there's evil in the world, you haven't done anything about it. So what are you complaining to God about? Why is he the problem? Doesn't it show how much more we need God? Right? And, and so if the evil and suffering of the world doesn't convince us, our hypocrisy should. Right? It should convince us that we need God to intervene in our lives. We need God to handle the evil and suffering because we're not going to. We can't. We won't. And so if that's not enough, there are these impossible standards, virtues, morality that we place on each other that's just crushing our souls. And worship, it helps us recognize our need of God because of those things. And I mean, be, be honest, the reason you get anxiety sometimes is because you're trying to control things that are not in your control. They're uncontrollable, yet you want to control it, and so you get anxious about it. 
You get anxious about the standards that you have for other people because God knows you're not going to stand and live to them, right? God knows if, so, if something happens, right, that this, this is a problem. We're going to get found out. We can't do anything about the evil, but we know it's wrong, but we don't want to lift a finger. It's uncomfortable. It's going to require us to take a risk that we don't want to take. We just want to accumulate things in our garage that we'll never see again, right? I mean, there are some of us today, honestly, that we have influence and we're in a place where people are listening and we're meeting with people that we have no business meeting. And if that doesn't cause anxiety and say, God, I need you more now than ever because there's no reason to be in this place for me because I'm unqualified. There's no reason for me to have the influence that I have. Then we should be worshiping God because we need him. We desperately need him. And so in worship, we relinquish control that we never had to God who can control it all. And in worship, God, he provides. He provides. And the reason he provides is because he has control of it all. That was in verse 8. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. The world is his. Everything was made for him, through him, for his glory. God rules over all things. We don't. We're just the dust heap that he redeems to be his children, right? So our lives, the circumstances that we're in, our relationships, our decisions, we depend on God for all that, and worship helps us know that we depend on him. Here's the third attribute of worship that points us to doing more in faith. Worship anticipates the promises of God. You see, Hannah recognizes God's promises and worships God for having fulfilled his promises even not having seen it yet, right? And honestly, God's promises are hard to believe, but they're worth our trust. That's the hope we have when we take risks in Jesus, in faith. I'm gonna share seven promises that Hannah say are from God right here, starting in verse nine. Promise number one, God will guard the feet of his faithful ones. Promise two, but the wicked shall, not be, cut, shall be cut off in darkness. Promise three, for not by might shall a man prevail. And I want to focus on this for one minute because it says, you know what? For not by might shall a man prevail. Hannah understands that victory in this life, victory in our lives are not by our own doing, but by, not by our strength and not by our power. The prophet Zechariah in his book in, in chapter 3 finishes the thought when he says, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Right? God fulfills his plans and purposes for our lives through his sheer will alone by his spirit alone, and there is no burden on us to perform just to be faithful. That's all we have to do, be faithful. When we worship God, we eagerly anticipate his promises for us, his prevailing over our lives. Verse four, this is promise number four, verse 10, I mean. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. Promise five, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. Promise six, he will give strength to his king. And promise seven, he will exalt the horn of his anointed. What a glorious picture. What glorious promises. It's a preview of what God does in eternity. And in worship, we get to taste that eternity. If your life needs a taste of eternity now, worship. Worship because the risks that we take, the circumstances we're in, we're awaiting for eternity the promises of God are greater than us. It's greater than our lifetimes. They stretch into eternity, into infinity. And we stand witness as God's awe, God's power unfolds. You see, Hannah's worshiping prophetically. She, she sees the king. 
She sees Jesus, right? Jesus getting the power and dominion over the earth. God judging the earth. Jesus with the strength to rule over all creation. How glorious a victory. You see, God gives Jesus victory in death, victory in sin, right? And our Christ is glorified. He's glorified because now he has victory over all. That's amazing news for us. That's amazing as his children because God is faithful and we need him to fulfill his promises in our lives. If you want to experience the fullness of life, of a life well lived in faith, then we have to commit to making worship a priority, both corporate and individual, make it a regular rhythm of what we do, not when we're convenienced, not when it's not when we're in need, not occasionally, but we make it the center of our lives and be empowered for the good works that God has for us. His power, his greatness, his spirit, it's gonna spur us on in faith. So worship, worship, worship. Let's pray. Father, we worship you. All praise is yours. You are the one we bow before because you reign forever. We acknowledge that you are holy and you alone break the chains of injustice, of brokenness, of poverty, of division. And Lord, we worship you because we need you. We need you to redeem us, to change us from the inside out, to help us move forward in faith because there's just so many things around us that say, abandon what you believe, abandon who you trust. God, I ask that you allow our worship to be anointed by your spirit. Let it overflow. Let it overflow in delightful obedience. God, we want to be faithful to the plans you have for us. God, help us follow your son. Let us witness your power, your grace, and mercy as you promised in your word. God, the the people today who, who are going through the motions, practicing faith, God, hear from them. Encourage them, sustain them. Give them a taste of eternity so that the mundaneness of this world is dulled and that your vision, the fullness of what you're unfolding can be seen by all of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.